According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 8 is our text this morning. John 7:53 through 8:11, a passage that your English text probably places in brackets of some sort. Take so time for a moment of prayer to make sure that each believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not wasting our time in carnality. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we ask for your guidance uh, as we study. We ask for your your faithfulness to be manifest through the Holy Spirit who guides us into the truth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. After the uh, chapter 7 confrontation with um, the Pharisees and the crowds and the the grouping here at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, we have the scorn of the know-it-alls, the Pharisees, saying, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's a total lie, but either they're deliberately lying or they're uh, non-deliberately stupid. Uh, There were several prophets that had come from Galilee, including Jonah, including Nahum, uh, Elijah the Tishbite, and others. Um, But that's that's a whole different realm right there. Basically, they don't want it to say that, so in their mind it doesn't say that. The Bible says what they want it to say, and you have no right to question what they tell you it says because they are the authorities. And that's the nature of a cult. That's the nature of a, of a legalistic religion and so forth. You can't, you can't think for yourself. You can't, you're not smart enough to understand what it means. You just have to trust them. Then we have these verses. Everyone went to his home, and we can read through it here, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. And then verse 10, John 8, 10 Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. All right, that's our text from John 7:53 through 8:11, And it's a, uh, a wonderful story as far as that goes. Interesting. It has some vivid details in there. The fact that they caught this woman in the very act. That's pretty explicit there in verse 4 that uh, when they actually nabbed her and laid hands and, you know, took her into custody, she was even at that moment engaged in adultery, apparently by herself, because we don't have a man that was dragged in here with her. And I, I can't figure out how she could be caught in the act with no man also caught in the act, present and dragged out here. But however else that works. Anyway, it's an interesting story and it grabs our attention and it, of course, is pretty vivid and all the rest, and as far as it goes, it's interesting, but as we studied last week, it is of questionable uh, legitimacy, as it were. Uh, There are a lot of interesting stories in the world, but uh, the the bulk of them don't belong in the Bible, because uh, as interesting as they are, they are not God-breathed and inspired. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. The question is, is this passage God-breathed and profitable? In other words, Uh, Was it included in the original manuscript when the beloved disciple sat down and put quill to parchment and the Holy Spirit through him composed 
the Gospel of John. And so that has been our study. Now, I've got some notes available. If you weren't here last week, and I know Matt wasn't, some of these other folks were. Who, who doesn't have one? We'll get uh, some copies set out here. Anything about being wireless, if I don't break this other microphone, then I can roam around the room. I kind of broke it doing something like this, actually. Did you need one, too? Yeah, okay. There we are. You need one, too? No, you were here last week. Did you lose yours? That's going to that's gonna cost you a dollar. There you are. Okay. Yeah, if you lost yours last week, I'm going to have to charge you an extra dollar. All right. This chapter is called the Pericope. What is the Pericope? As we looked at it last week, it is the disputed text, the Pericope de Adultera, or the Pericope. Sometimes they take the D out, it's just Pericope Adulteri. Uh, it's the disputed text of John 7:53 through 8:11, one of the most significant problem texts in the New Testament, primarily because of its length. It's not really troublesome for any other reason. It's not as if uh, we take this passage out and all of a sudden we've got no more Bible verses about adultery in our Bibles. Clearly, uh, this passage is not necessary in order to teach adultery, in order to teach grace, in order to teach forgiveness, in order to teach a lot of the doctrinal concepts that can be uh, brought out of this text. The question is, does it belong in the original? Was it found in the autograph, as we call it, the original manuscript that the Holy Spirit penned through the human authorship of the Apostle John? There are other significant problem texts, including uh, exactly where does Mark end at what verse there in verse 16. And then the famous comma, Johannium, Johannium, that's uh, the disputed text in uh, 1 John chapter 5. Those uh, are, are the three most prominent. There are, of course, dozens or hundreds of other text criticism exercises that New Testament scholars go through. Now, last week we looked at the evidence against and the evidence for, and I won't repeat myself through all that. You have them in front of you. Five lines of evidence against, including these verses here, including the fact that uh, the account is lacking in the earliest Greek manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts we have do not have them, and those include the uh, Chester Beatty papyri, uh, 66 and 75, includes Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and the rest that you see listed there, including some very some that are not necessarily early, but even some later manuscripts that evidence the fact that when it started to creep into the text tradition, uh, it did not come in universally and did not come in um, very broadly. So, for example, when you start looking at the W in that list, I'm looking now at Roman numeral 2A1. When you start looking at some of these later ones, like Codex Washingtonius, for example, and some of these later ones, they're not what we would call early. 33 is the Queen of the Cursives, and some of these other minuscule manuscripts, they are later. These are the early ones, clearly, right through there. Those are what we call early and, and the story is not in there. And the fact that the story is missing in some of the later ones also is testimony because when it does start appearing, it starts appearing only in certain places in the late manuscripts, and that becomes significant. Now, the two early ones that are missing are uh, Vaticanus and, I'm sorry, Alexandrinus and Ephraimi Rescriptus right here, A and C. And... Uh, the reason why we can't include them up here with this list is because the manuscripts themselves are defective. They're damaged, they're smudged, uh, either a, a section is missing or is simply blotted out and unable to be read. However, um, given the, the, the size of the smudge, it's not likely that all of these verses, we're talking about 12 verses, it's not likely that they could have been there. And so we're 99% certain that a and C did not contain it either, which is understandable because they tend to be in agreement with, uh, with Sinaiticus and Vaticanus there. All right, they're not found in the early manuscripts. That's the first line of evidence. When they do start to show up, it's interesting because they start to show up in Latin texts. They start to show up in some of the, not all, but some of the Latin manuscript tradition, including Codex Bizet, and uh, what makes Bize interesting is that it is a bilingual document. It has Latin and Greek on facing, on facing pages. So the first Greek manuscript that has this story about the adulterous woman uh, was a Greek-Latin bilingual document, and clearly the influence of the Latin tradition 
um, caused the uh, story to be inserted in there. When it does start appearing, we gave this to you under A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. When it does start appearing, it, starts, it gets put in different spots. Scribes weren't exactly sure where to put it. And so some put it uh, after the end of John 7:52, at the end of the chapter. Some stuck it in in between verses 36 and 37. Some put it in um, at the end of the whole Gospel of John. And uh, there was one Georgian, uh, the old Georgian revision, put it in after John 7:44. There's even a family of documents that puts it in the Gospel of Luke. And when it started to get placed in there, Scribes put it in the text, but then they marked it with an asterisk. They marked it with a little symbol, an obelisk or an asterisk of some sort, indicating that even there the scribes felt that they were, uh, they were dealing with a disputed text. So the first line of testimony is ancient Greek manuscripts. The second line of evidence comes from ancient translations. You know, if we didn't have any Greek manuscripts... We could reconstruct them based on the translations we have in other languages and based upon their citations by the church fathers. Well, the ancient translations don't have it either. Huh. We do have air conditioning today. I was wondering. Okay. Um, for instance, when the Bible is translated into the Syriac, when it's translated into Arabic, when it's translated into Coptic, all three branches of Coptic, Sahidic, Achminic, and the older Boharic, None of them contain the passage. Likewise, the Armenian manuscript, the old Georgian versions, the Gothic versions, and notice several Latin manuscripts. It's only in a handful of Latin manuscripts where the pericope was, uh, was contained. So Greek manuscripts, other languages in translation. Thirdly, the quotation from the church fathers. Zero of the Greek fathers quoted it. And the early Latin fathers did not quote it. Uh, no Greek father for a thousand years after Christ refers to it ever. And that includes uh, guys like Origen and these other guys. They, they wrote commentaries on the Gospel of John. They wrote commentaries on the Gospel of John, went verse by verse, writing their commentaries on the Gospel of John. And no evidence of the Pericope de Adultra appears in their commentaries. That's... I mean, all of this, you put any one of these is, is strong evidence. You put all of them together and the sheer weight of obviousity where it becomes obvious, uh, I think, makes it undeniable. This was the name last week, Euthemius Zygabinus. I just love that name, Euthemius Zygabinus. He was the first writer, to, the Greek writer, to address it. And when he did so, he declared that accurate copies of the gospel leave it out. It does not belong in there. The fourth line of evidence goes to the Latin fathers. The early Latin fathers did not quote it, which itself is remarkable because Tertullian and Cyprian wrote specifically about adultery. Uh, some of their uh, documents, their treatises, their essays, their uh, uh, theological works were specifically about adultery and they didn't include this. It'd be like a church father creating an essay on um, the crucifixion and, and failing to mention, oh yeah, Jesus went to the cross too. You know, it just, it's unthinkable that these fathers would have um, written on adultery and not included the pericope in their story. Particularly since why? They were Latin fathers and the uh, pericope story was originally a Latin tradition. And then the last evidence comes as an internal element. Some of this, I put this as five, as the fifth and final kind of nail in the coffin. Uh, other people prefer to move internal evidence to a higher priority. I don't. Uh, I consider the internal evidence, but I don't place it as high because of the subjective nature of it. There's always other opinions about the things you examine internally. For example, the style of vocabulary. And you might line up 100 guys that say, you know what, the style of vocabulary doesn't match John. But then you find 20 other guys that say, you know, it kind of does match John. And it's just simply a matter of opinion whether you, you've, you read it and say, you know, that style's a little bit different. Now, you can objectively look at things such as words. 14 out of 82 vocabulary words in the section are un-Johannine. They're not John's words. Uh, they're closer to Luke's terminology than John's terminology, particularly the way John loves to use un as a temporal particle. Uh, but the... Uh, this section consist, rejects any uses of un and consistently uses hos for their temporal conjunction. So all of that comes together to say, you know what? It doesn't really look like John wrote this. 
Also, there's the argument that says, well, it's kind of an interruption. Because what we have here in these chapters is you have Jesus teaching a class and people reacting in anger. And he teaches a class and people react in anger. He teaches another class. And what happens here as an introduction, supposedly he's teaching a class and then they're going to they're gonna intrude on his Bible class by bringing this woman in and uh, asking for a judgment. Even if it is consistent that they did things like that to try to trap him, it's not consistent that they would have interrupted the proceedings of a rabbi's class. Not even the Pharisees would do that. If, even if they disagreed with the other rabbi, they wouldn't inter- interrupt his class to do something like that. Uh, That's all the evidence against, including this passage in our Bibles. We did look at the positive evidence, and that's only fair. It's not exactly right to line up all the proof against something and then not consider the other side. Uh, There is evidence, and this is what's typically claimed. And I clipped five reasons that, I'm sorry, uh, seven reasons that Zane Hodges gave. Now, I, I respect Zane. Zane is a, is a tremendous scholar. Zane um, has edited and produced his own edition of the Greek New Testament. He's, he's a far better Greek scholar than, than I will ever be uh, this side of immortality. But, and he, he thinks this text is legitimate. He believes it belongs in John 8, right here where it's placed. And this is the line of testimony he gave. Um, we noted that it's not found in the early manuscripts. He notes that, well, it is found in the majority of the manuscripts. It's found in the majority of the manuscripts. That's undeniable. Uh, it is rather a bit off topic, however, because the majority of the manuscripts were, didn't become the majority until the 9th, 10th, or 11th century, and they became the majority because in the East, the, uh, the emperor was supportive of this publication, and, and it was actually paid for out of state funds. In the West... They had long since gone out of the Greek manuscript business anyway. Uh, Jerome published the Latin Vulgate, and the Western Church was uh, simply gone to a Latin Vulgate for centuries uh, up to this point. So it's not a surprise that the majority of the manuscripts were the Byzantine text traditions that, uh, that included this story. He also points out, this is another straw man, it's easier to comprehend that a 12-verse section of Scripture would be deleted by a scribe than it is to comprehend a 12-verse section of Scripture being inserted by a scribe. That there, I think, is a subjective statement. What's more reasonable? Well, it might be more reasonable in one way of looking at it, or it might be one. It might be reasonable in a different way of looking at it. Uh, I, I could see a scribe taking something out if he felt it was not legitimate, or a scribe putting something in if he thought it was legitimate. And um, either way, it could happen. But also notice this point dodges the real issue because we're not saying that it was originally in there and then scribes took it out. We're saying that it was not originally in there at all. So the idea that, well, it's easier to comprehend that 12 verses were cut out, see, which is their theory. Their theory is that it was originally in there and somewhere along the line, a scribe cut it out. And uh, that's, uh, that kind of dodges the question. Another thing about how early the story appears, uh, the Peshitta, they, they, uh, they think this is the answer to the fact that the Peshitta omitted it. Well, they say, well, yeah, but the Peshitta also omitted Second Peter and Second and Third John and Revelation, too. So there, that doesn't prove anything. Well, that's, that misses the point also. Yes, the, the Peshitta omitted certain books, no question about that, but they included John. And in their copy of John, this paragraph was not found. All right, so that's that's uh, actually not an argument in their favor. It's an argument in the, on the other side. And then they point out, well, many Latin church fathers quoted it. And they got a pretty comprehensive list. Look at all these guys that quoted it. As we pointed out, the three that did not quote it were earlier than any of these guys. The earliest one we can find is Ambrose, and he was so respected in the Western church that it's if this was a story that he uh, gave, uh, it's conceivable that people listen to that story so many times and then after augustine puts it in there uh, twice as often as ambrose well then it might as well be scripture as far as the the latin fathers are concerned so at least nine times in his writings ambrose quotes it and augustine about 18 times that he quotes it and then everybody else follows ambrose and augustine so the last points as you flip to the back side of your notes here f and g Jerome included it in the Vulgate. And, and that was really a watershed moment 
Everybody that talks about the impact the King James Bible has had for 300 years now, 400 years now. All right. I guess 1611. Yeah. Three more years from now, we'll have the 400th birthday of the of the King James. Well, that's that's good. That's about 40 percent of the dominion that uh, the Vulgate had. The Vulgate had universal dominion in the West for a millennia, for a thousand years. Anyway, uh, because Jerome's Vulgate included it, it uh, has had dominance in later text. However, even Jerome confessed when he says uh, the gospel according to John in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, has found the story of the adulterous woman. Uh, So he acknowledges that there is a text question here and that not all manuscripts contain the story. If you ever read his dialogue against the Pelagians, then uh, you'll, you'll note that in there. Finally, Augustine's personal theory was that there were preachers who who were scared that the wives would read that passage of of John and uh, and feel emboldened. Uh, He says here, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, um, removed from their manuscripts the, the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. That's his theory. He thinks it was originally in there, and these, uh, these other folks took it out. All right. So those are the arguments for, arguments against. I think the testimony uh, is overwhelming in the against column that this uh, paragraph was not originally in the Gospel of John. It's also worthwhile to go ahead and look at some of the uh, various modern English translations. If you're sitting here with an NIV Bible, um, I'll pray for you. <laughs> it's not. What, what did Arnold say about testing NIV positive? Was that the? He had some joke about theological liberals that score NIV positive. Anyway, um, in your NIV Bibles, there is a footnote, and uh, in the brackets it says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. That's how they phrased it. New American Standard says John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not found in most of the old manuscripts. And actually, that was the original New American Standard. The 95 update rewords it a little bit. says later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7, 53 through 8, 11. I think it's a better way of saying that. Rather than saying early manuscripts omit it or saying it's not found in old manuscripts, say later manuscripts added this paragraph and that's a legitimate observation based on the manuscript transmission record that we have Ryrie study bible great study bible i recommend it this story though probably authentic is omitted in many manuscripts and may not have been originally a part of this gospel notice um probably authentic i agree with that i have no reason to doubt that this was undoubtedly this was a story that got passed down, that got told again and again and again and again. Like we said, it's a good story. Join me. Hold your finger there. Look over at Luke one one. Remind yourself of something here that I think sometimes we forget. Inasmuch as many, notice many. It's not just three. It's not just or two really. It's not just Matthew and Mark. Because Luke writes 30 years before John does. So at this point, there's two canonical inspired biblical gospels. But he says there were many that have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. All right. And so that was Luke's desire. What does he testify? He says, you know what? In his day, back in the 60s, right, that there were lots of stories floating around. There were a lot. Those are the 060s, the, the 60s A.D., not the 1960s. All right. That there were all kinds of stories passing around. There were legends. There were things written up and all of that. And he wanted to filter through the rumor and the legends and stuff and record an accurate gospel. And of course, the Holy Spirit inspired it. And we have it today as the Gospel of Luke. And so I think Ryrie is correct here and others that felt that this pericope reflects a, a, a true story. It undoubtedly happened or something similar to it actually happened. But that's different than saying it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and composed in the Gospel of John. The New American Bible. 
This is the St. Joseph edition, not the New American Standard, but this is the the modern uh, American English Catholic Bible. The uh, story of the adulteress is missing from the best early Greek manuscripts. Where it does appear, it is found in different places from in different manuscripts. We pointed that out also. Here, or after John 7.36, or at the end of the Gospel, sometimes it's tacked on at the back of John as a appendix. Uh, or it even appears in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 21.38. It seems to have been preserved largely in Western and Latin circles. Isn't that the same thing we observed when we observed the manuscripts and where it started? It was certain Latin text traditions. There are many non-Johannine features in the language, and there are also many doubtful readings. Because in the in the eight or ten early manuscripts where it does appear, there's a scat. I mean, there's just any number of variants and issues there. It does appear in Jerome's Vulgate. However, it is certainly out of place here. It fits better with the general situation in Luke 21:38. The Catholic Church accepts it as inspired scripture, which of course so that do the Apocrypha and other things that they think supports celibacy and purgatory and whatever else. All right. The uh, Zondervan Study Bible found many uh, NIV editions, also found in some King James editions. Uh, They point out the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this text. The story may not have belonged originally to the Gospel of John. It is absent from almost all the early manuscripts. Those that have it sometimes place it elsewhere, e.g. after Luke 21.38. Notice again, but the story may well be authentic. The story may well be authentic. Remember, the early church fathers were very uh, proud of their lineage in terms of who they studied under and who they studied under and who they studied under, for example. They knew you had the chain, for example, from um, Irenaeus to Polycarp to John, and they knew, or Tertullian, for example, and and they would know that, well, Tertullian, he studied under Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of, of the Apostle John. And so that's a pretty short step. That's a pretty short chain of evidence, chain of custody, as it were. Finally, Schofield, the last one I'll give you here. The New Schofield Study Bible, although this text is not found in some ancient manuscripts, the immediate context, beginning with Christ's declaration, I am the light of the world, seems clearly to have its occasion in the conviction created in the hearts of the Pharisees, as recorded in 8.9. So... Um, He thinks that verse 12, which is not in dispute, where Jesus steps up and says, I am the light of the world, that somehow that is uh, uh, launched out of verse 9, where one by one, beginning with the older ones, he was left alone, the woman where she was, in the center of the court. And what Schofield says here is that this declaration, I am the light of the world, seems to have its occasion in the conviction created in the hearts of the Pharisees, as recorded in 8.9, also helps to explain the Pharisees' words in 8.41. A little bit later in the chapter, the Pharisees say, um, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. All right, well, you don't need this adulterous woman in the earlier part of the chapter to explain why the Pharisees would... Uh, why the Pharisees would slander Jesus as being uh, as being a bastard, being illegitimate, right? Um, it's not necessary. Uh, their their criticism against him is by virtue of uh, a lot of the opposition research they've done. <laughs> I mean, think about it. They they've done some homework. They've gone back and interviewed family members. They've discovered what they could find about you know what. Jesus was born on this particular day and their engagement was at this particular day and it was supposed to run this particular time, but something happened. They moved it up early and now here's this baby. All right? I mean, we can do the same thing today when you look at a wedding certificate on a certain date and then a birth certificate that comes up under nine months later. Right? And what do we figure out? Well, duh. Okay, so... Here's what they're accusing them, though. They're saying that, yeah, Joseph and Mary, they were, uh, you know, they were immoral before marriage and all this other stuff, see. Which not only, atta- not only attacks Jesus for, you could, let's just divorce the whole uh, morality thing of it. it. It's a denial of the virgin birth, right? If Joseph and Mary are these, uh, you know, teenagers in the back seat somewhere, 
then Jesus is mortal. He's sin. He's a sinner. He's in Adam. He's in all of that, right? Anyway, they we'll we'll touch on that because we're going to develop this out down in verse forty one, because this is the powerful you of your father the devil. And this is a, a strong strong message about uh, some of the deeper things of Satanology in here, and uh, that's when they resort to their name calling and and uh, criticism of Jesus. And, and and I'm going to disagree with Schofield here that the story the pericope is not necessary for that insult to be levied in verse 41. The pericope is not necessary to explain the light of the world message in verse 12. In fact, I think it's kind of, it makes it even more problematic. So um, there was no such story that, that led to the, I am the bread of life, or I am the door, or I am the good shepherd. See, those, those uh, I am messages didn't require some kind of uh, contextual episode to feed off of or to lead into. So um, the light of the world doesn't need a, uh, a context that really has to be stretched to say that, that they walked away in some kind of shame or in some kind of light or some kind of what have you. All right. Now, I didn't want to just leave this whole study as an academic text criticism exercise, although that's worthwhile. All right, that's worthwhile. Uh, I want to really give you the A, B, and C here in the summary as a uh, an encouragement, as an excitement to know, you know what, we have a trustworthy Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed, and this is the truth of the Bible. And the reason why we can examine the manuscripts with the detail we can is because we're not afraid of what we might find in any manuscript. See, Time Magazine wants to hype this uh, gospel of Judas they find in a cave and think, ooh, look at this. Christians have been hiding stuff from us all this time, right? Well, yeah, you're about 2,000 years late because the early church fathers knew all about that Gnostic heresy and they condemned it when it appeared in, the, in their generation, in their 3rd and 4th century appearance. All right. Obviously, something that got written in the 4th century uh, wasn't written by Judas because Judas hanged himself in 33 AD. So figure that one out. All right, so let's look at the summary now. And uh, I guess I didn't. I went so long last week. I didn't take time for questions. If if uh, we take a couple minutes here, if there's anything on the front side of this page or the top of the back side, I guess really the front part of the page has all of the squiggles and the uh, abbreviations and the manuscripts and the different. Uh, things there. Are, are there any questions related to manuscripts, related to text families, or anything, anything that's there? Or is it so esoteric that just say, you know, past that's kind of cool, but I don't really care. It doesn't <laughs> float my boat one way or the other, right? Okay. Then we won't sweat it. Uh, summarizing thoughts. On the inspiration of Scripture. We've been dealing with bibliology in systematic theology on Sunday nights for those that are in the uh, in training ministry for uh, um, systematic theology. We've covered that. We also covered it in the basic doctrinal studies on Sunday mornings a couple of years back. So you've had issues here already. The inerrancy of the original manuscripts and the inevitable errors in descendant manuscripts. Inevitable. Why? Because human beings made the copies. And human beings make mistakes. It's called human error. And it happens. The neat thing about it is that when you have so many manuscripts to compare, you can spot the human errors for what they are. And there's a whole uh, study on what those errors happen to be. And I'll get that up and running here too, and we'll have time to, uh, to look at that. In... General introduction to the Bible. We'll find that here in a moment. All right. First of all, Scripture is God-breathed. All right? Does that go without saying? <laughs> You'd be amazed. Absolutely amazed. Even people with teaching forget this. People with teaching, sometimes it just escapes them and they just, whatever. Because they're surrounded by the cosmos is surrounded by people that don't have the uh, fear of the Lord and don't have the, the reverence for his word. 
And how many thousands of times a year are we told that, well, this is just the tradition of men that were compiled together out of oral traditions and different stories. And, and the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, just they, they, they picked and chose and they, they edited what they wanted. See? I heard that so many times it makes me want to puke. No, the Scriptures are God-breathed. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You should know it. You should know it well. You should have it memorized. 2 Timothy 3. 16. Some of it, even, even with believers under teaching, take issue. We're about to handle 2 Timothy chapter 2. I know Christian women that have a problem with that chapter. Because it says, he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And oh, well, that's just chauvinistic. That's just uh, Paul's opinion. That's just Paul was not married. Paul hated women. You know, I'll tell you that. Paul was a misogynist. They say that. You know. <laughs> Stop right there. Paul was the human author, but who inspired it? And if you're just going to rip those verses out of your, out of your, your Bible because they're not convenient, you know, hand me a marker. Let me mark a few more out while I'm at it. You can't just pick and choose what parts, if they are legitimate, which parts you're going to obey? You've got to obey them all. Now, if you can demonstrate to me that that passage uh, showed up in the 5th century somewhere out of a Latin tradition, okay, we'll look at it. But if, uh, if all the evidence of the text is that it was a part of the original uh, book and uh, there's no significant uh, variant that, that shows otherwise, then it's Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It is, not, it is the work of God, not the work of man. So all Scripture. And by the way, it's... it's Important to note that in the New Testament, in many places, Scripture refers to the Old Testament. But then the New Testament includes itself in its own uh, testimony. So if you hold your finger there, how many places have you got your finger stuck now? Hold your finger. You can take them out of John 8, that's fine. Um, but, but keep one finger in 2 Timothy 3 and look over at 2 Peter 3. See, from 2 Timothy 3 to 2 Peter 3. And there's something I, I typically, typically uh, skip over when I say from verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then I, normally I skip down to verse 18 with and grow in the grace of knowledge. But in between there, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And... Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul. And look what he says here. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. <laughs> you have a hard time following Paul's logic sometimes? Well, so did Peter, right? And he was an apostle. He wasn't the first pope, but he was the apostle, an apo a legitimate apostle, and he, uh, he had a hard time figuring Paul out in some of the things. But now notice what he says in the rest of the verse. This is so key. Which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest... Do you see what it says there? The rest of Scriptures. See, it's not only the Old Testament that's counted as Scripture, but by Peter's own testimony here, everything Paul wrote that's found in the canon here is also Scripture, equivalent to the Old Testament. As they do the rest of Scripture. So the untaught and the unstable. Keep that phrase in mind. All right, now back to 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God. That includes the Old Testament New Testament alike. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Also, you can add to that, based on what we just read in 2 Peter 3, it is vulnerable to criticism and attack by which, group, by which groups? The untaught and the unstable. The untaught and the unstable. It's a great definition there for false teachers. Either they're ignorant and they don't know any better, or... They're unstable. They're deliberately spewing their false information for whatever the reasons are. All right. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, that's complete, equipped for every good work. 
The scriptures are designed to equip you for your service to God the Father. That's why we teach the Word of God. That's why we don't get distracted by myths and endless genealogy and non-issues and speculations. We're not supposed to be ensnared by the speculations. We're supposed to be destroying the speculations in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Weapons of our warfare defiantly powerful for the destruction of fortresses, as it were. All right. So Scripture is God-breathed. I've had believers I've had to debate this with that uh, in particular are critical of certain things. And, and what it is, it's, it's entirely it's just a subjective glitch. And what, there's a verse that bugs them. All right. They say, well, I'm sorry that verse bugs you, but don't blame me for it. I didn't write it. Make that, take that to your prayers and ask the Father to humble you to accept what He wrote. Or accept His wrath on you for your rebellion against His Word. Make that choice yourself. <laughs> Alright? So Scripture is God-breathed. The term in the Greek is theopneustos. Theos for God, pneustos for breath or breathing. And uh, He used human tools to put the, uh, the quill to the parchment. But he was the one that uh, breathed the words through them. All right. Secondly, God's works are never thwarted by human limitations and failures. God's works are never thwarted by human limitations and failures. I believe the insertion of the Pericope de Adultera was a human failure in manuscript transmission. That Latin scribes at some point in the 4th and 5th centuries, started to insert that paragraph in various spots. Most in John, some in Luke. But those human efforts did not thwart God's objective. God's objective was to give us a canon of Scripture. And that's what we have. We have the God-breathed, inspired Word of God, and there is no doubt about it. You want some verses for encouragement? There they are. Job 23.13, Job 42.2, Isaiah 14.27, Isaiah 46.10, and Daniel 4.35. And we've got the time today to look at these. Job. Start with Job 23.13. I've been in Job all year long with the teenagers on Sunday nights. Having a lot of fun with them. We're not up to 23 yet. We're still back in 20 and 21. But 23. when he describes how helpless he is in the face of sovereignty. And um, the different things here. Verse 13 says, But he is unique, one of a kind, the one and only, the sole, self-existent, independent, uncreated being in the universe. He is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. We can't overrule what He wants to do. And He will do what brings pleasure to His soul. It is, this verse doesn't mean that God can do anything. There's things God can't do. He can't abide iniquity. There's things He cannot do. He cannot lie. He can't make a stone so big He can't lift it and all those stupid things that unbelievers like to talk about, right? Things He cannot do. But He does what His soul desires, what His soul loves. When you understand the love of the Father, for example, He loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to give, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We see that it's characteristic of the soul of God to appreciate volition when it's exercised according to His plan. And that it's not pleasing to the soul of God to coerce forced behavior, not grudgingly or under compulsion. So he does what his soul desires that he does. No one can turn him. You can't make God do something, anything. 42.2 in Job's confession. In the rebuke that comes in verse chapter 40, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? And then two chapters of rebuke, culminating with Leviathan in chapter 41. Then Job answered the Lord and said in Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You cannot thwart God's plan. Adam and Eve could not thwart God's plan. Their sin in the Garden of Eden did not thwart God's plan. These 5th century Latin scribes that put a story in their Bibles about the Pericope de Adultera, they didn't thwart God's plan. 
God's plan goes forth. Isaiah fourteen twenty seven. We may not get to my Geisler material. That's fine. Hmm. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? You ever notice that? Maybe this has never happened to you. I trust it has. It's common to humanity. You come up with a plan. It's a good plan. It's a great plan. You thought of everything. Every imaginable contingency. You've got it all lined out. Maybe it's an anniversary getaway with your wife. Whatever it is. Anyway, you planned and planned and planned, and it was, which was entirely unlike you because you normally don't plan anything. But you plan and you plan and you plan. Everything is perfect. Every detail is lined up. Man, nothing can go wrong until it does. Because that's the realm of humanity. That's where you and I live in. Things get frustrated. Out of our control, somebody else has a different plan. Right? The husband has one plan. The wife has another plan. Uh Uh-oh. Okay? Her plan was the symphony. Your plan was a ball game. Whatever it was. Then what do you do? One of those plans isn't happening. So how, uh, how does this work? But that didn't happen with the Lord. Lord of hosts has planned it. Who can frustrate it? See, what happened, though, in Isaiah 14... A little bit further up here, the adversary has a plan. And he, he outlines it in five steps. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's got this five-point plan. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Uh, Stalin always came up with five-point plans. The communists always had five-point plans. Always made me wonder. But here's Satan with a five-point plan. And uh, it's not going to work. And his plan won't thwart the Father's plan. As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? You know, if his hand is stretched down, he's ready to swat, you know, to swat a behind or smack somebody upside the head or whatever he's going to do. His hand is drawn back. Who's going to grab that hand and keep him from striking? Who's strong enough to hold his arm and keep him from administering divine wrath? Chapter 46. These are just really encouraging scriptures. I like all of them. Because they're humbling and they remind us, they remind me that uh, it's not the plan of Bob, it's the plan of God that we're supposed to be uh, following. And, oh, this is sweet. This is so sweet. This is uh, verse 5. To whom would you liken me? Remember, this is the same book where Satan said, I shall be like, I will be like the Most High God. And God in heaven says, oh, really? And then he composes this. To whom would you then liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Are you really going to go down that path of insanity? How do you propose to do that? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. (laughs) You know? They bow down, indeed, they worship it. All these idols, think about it. All these idols, what did they do? Where did the idol come from? They went and they paid somebody to make it for them. And it is as impressive as they could afford. If it wasn't all that impressive, it means they didn't have much gold and silver to begin with, and so they've got kind of a, 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 a Walmart kind of God. Maybe some of the more well-to-do guys, they had more gold, more silver. They went out there and they got a, you know, a whatever. Nordstrom's kind of God or whatever. I don't know what stores you shop at, but um, there's quite a difference between Nordstrom's and Walmart. Again, you might have, might have noticed that. The point being, whatever God you got, you got the God you could afford. You got the God you wanted. You got the God that you made. And, how, and you're going to compare that to... The God who made the gold to begin with? And then, verse 7, they lift it up on the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place. You know, any God that you have to carry around from place to place is not that impressive. Back when the children were small, they were very immobile, which was cool, because you knew that wherever you set them down, they were going to be there when you came back. They weren't going to wander off. And then they start crawling and rolling over, moving places. And then you had to be more careful, because you couldn't just lay them down anywhere. They might be elsewhere when you came back. But think about the little baby who can't move. And if you want it to go from one place to another, you've got to carry it around and put it there. 
how, how impressive is that? And you're going to bow down and worship that? Though you can cry to it, it's not going to answer you. You cannot deliver him from his distress. And then just the, the, the mocking tone here is, uh, is unmistakable. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. In other words, he shouldn't even have to say this. You know it to be true. Remember the former things long past. Now, you and I and angels are moral beings, beings of intellect, sensibility, and will. We have memories. We can remember what happened. I can remember, we were talking this morning about 1990, May 9th, 1990, the first day I ever walked into this building and sat down and heard Pastor Ralph Braun teaching the Bible. I can remember 1990. I cannot remember 2010. Can you remember 2010? No. We haven't been there yet. We can remember the past, but we're still advancing into the future one day per day. All right? Remember the linear progression, one-way road that uh, time consists of. So, remember, recall, remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. And look what he does. He declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. So, from the Alpha to the Omega, he can declare ancient times. He can declare things that have not yet been done. Because he's outside of time. And from Alpha to Omega, all of it is in his plan. All of it is in his view. So, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There it is again. God's purpose is equivalent to his good pleasure. What is it that delights his soul? What is it that his soul loves? Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. I love that. Absolutely love that. And it's, it's interesting because God even invites uh, some folks back a chapter in chapter 45 he even invites people to uh, go ahead and, uh, and do what they can. Uh, 45.20 Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. He says, declare and set forth your case. If you think your God is an equivalent, let him utter Scripture. Let him utter a uh, divine revelation. Indeed, let them consult together. Since admittedly they need help, go ahead and let it be a group effort of all these fallen angels. They can go ahead and cooperate on this. Come up with the Bible as best they can. Let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Jehovah? There is no other God beside me. A righteous God, a Savior. There is none except me. All right, so these two chapters, 45 and 46, go well together. Finally, Daniel 4.35. This is the humility lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you get to Hosea, you've gone too far. Hosea was a shocker to the teenager Sunday night. A total shocker. The, prophet, the Lord would command a prophet to marry a prostitute. Like, why would he do that? All right, Daniel 4.35. See, Nebuchadnezzar had learned this humility, which is why he had to become an animal for 12 years, or for seven years. And at the end of that period, Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed El Elyon, God Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, oh, what have you done? <laughs> so you can't stop him ahead of time, can't stop him at the time, and you can't stop him after the fact to say, explain yourself. Why did you do that? It's called sovereignty. And it's the glory that we can worship and celebrate. So God's works are never thwarted by human limitations. Finally, no, this is the, another thing to be encouraged by. No textual variation affects any doctrine of the church. 
if you include the pericope or exclude the pericope, it will not affect any doctrine. If you include the longer ending of Mark or exclude it, it does not affect any doctrine of the church, any of the fundamental doctrines of the church. There's some snake handlers, though, that really like that ending of Mark 16. And I think that there's some bitten snake handlers that uh, have tried to use the longer ending of Mark 16. The same orthodox fundamental Christianity is preached by faithful pastors using the Textus Receptus, the majority text, the critical text, or my method, the reasoned eclectic approach to textual criticism. We're not enslaved to any one Greek manuscript or any Greek New Testament edition. Remember that guy that was coming in here causing trouble a few months ago? Put the, uh, the Beware of Pastor Bob posters on your windshields out there in the parking lot. Remember that guy? That guy was a total crusader for the Textus Receptus. Absolutely. His, this was his idol. And specifically, the daughter of this in the English language, the King James Bible. That the King James Bible was God's revealed word, divinely inspired, preserved for the English-speaking world, and that the translators were filled with the Holy Ghost and gave us this magical text and all that. Okay? That's what he worships. And that people who use the critical text, the Nestle Lawn text, which is my base text, that uh, you then depart from as you, on a case-by-case basis, evaluate the variance. Um, if you use the critical text, you are a part of the Alexandrian cult serving Satan and reading out of Satan's Bible. That you deny the deity of Christ. That you deny... Uh, they have a long list of 14 things that the New American Standard Bible uh, goes into heresy. And you look at this list of 14 things and you say, you check one off at a time and say, no, no, I, I teach that. Right down the line. I would be dispensational. I would be orthodox. I would teach the same doctrines I teach today if all I had was a King James Bible or if all I had was the Textus Receptus. Or if all I had was Erasmus's third edition. Or even better, his second edition. So I wouldn't have the Kama Johannium. Um, it's the, it's, the issue in examining manuscripts is not one of theology. It's, one of, of, uh, it's a technical study on the transmission of manuscripts. That's all it is. All right. No text variation. So you can be confident your Bible is the God-breathed and inspired Word of God. At the very bottom there, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the last paragraph. Schaefer quotes Schaff, Dr. Philip Schaff, who, who says, The multitude of various readings of the Greek text need not puzzle or alarm any Christian. It is the natural result of the great wealth of our documentary resources. It is a testimony to the immense importance of the New Testament. It does not affect, but rather ensures the integrity of the text and is a useful stimulus to study. Only f- about 400 of the 100,000 or 150,000 variations materially affect the sense. We have more now since he was alive. There's over 200,000 variants that we know of now. But still, about this, there's still about the same 400 places where the, the meaning is altered in some way. Of these, not more than 50 are really important for one reason or another. And even of these, 50, not one affects an article of the faith or a precept of duty which is not abundantly sustained by the other undoubted passages. In other words, if you've got a difficult passage, explain it with a passage that's not in dispute. So it's abundantly sustained by other and undoubted passages or by the whole tenor of Scripture teaching. The Textus Receptus of Stevens, Beza, and Elzevir. And by the way, the, it's, it's a myth that there's one single received text. There's multiple editions of these texts. I've got them in my library. I can show you all the Textus Receptuses you'd like. Receptuci? Recept- anyway, it was a publishing blurb, not a testimony to the uh, manuscripts themselves. So the text is receptus of Stevens, Bees, and Elzevir in our English versions, each precisely the same Christianity, teach precisely the same Christianity as the uncial text of the Sinaitic and Vatican manuscripts, the oldest versions of the Anglo-American revision. All right. So that concludes that. I think 
this will be the final session we'll spend on John 8. We'll move on to the next episode and uh, be ready for that next Wednesday. Any questions? Final questions, thoughts, concerns? Anything about manuscripts? Anything about this text? Am I going to take the time to ask you? Know, what did he write when he bent down with his finger and wrote in the, in the dirt? Who knows? If it happened at all, we can ask Jesus when, when we get there, and then he'll say, doesn't matter. Why do you care? <laughs> all right. Um, so far as that goes. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness, and for the faithfulness of uh, so many scholars and students, those that have poured their lives into examining the manuscripts and studying the, uh, the uh, transmission uh, history and the record that we have. Thank you that we have the most uh, complete, we have the most unique, uh, the, the living and abiding Word of God. Nothing else in human history matches the achievement of our Scriptures. And Father, that's undeniable by any fair, objective evaluation. And I thank you for that. I pray for these brothers and sisters here today as we go forth uh, more equipped and prepared to, uh, to contend earnestly for the faith which has once and for all been delivered unto the saints. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.